Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think I must begin by congratulating Gresham College on its prescience uh, <laughs> in asking me one year ago to give a lecture on Brexit the day after a very crucial vote. But I myself have to begin with two apologies. The first is I won't be talking about yesterday's vote or what we should do next because I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> and the second apology is for giving yet another lecture on Brexit, which is the eighth I've given at Gresham. It's been rightly said that everything that could be said on Brexit has already been said, but it's not yet been said by everybody. <laughs> And uh, I don't want to talk about whether Brexit is a good thing or not, but rather to consider the effects of Brexit if it occurs on British government and the British constitution, and then, rather more briefly, the effects of Brexit on the European Union itself. And the first half of my talk summarises themes in my book, published recently, called Beyond Brexit. And you can buy the book if you want after the lecture, and I'd be glad to sign it without extra charge. Um, the second half of my talk, The Effects of Brexit on the European Union, is a summary of themes which I'm developing in lectures I'm giving at Yale next month and which will be published shortly afterwards in a book by Yale University Press. Now, the first obvious effect of Brexit on British government was that Europe led to the introduction of the referendum our first national referendum was held in 1975 on the question of whether we ought to remain in the European community, as the European Union then was, uh, which we joined in 1973. And the referendum had hitherto been thought unconstitutional. And, for example, in a standard work on British government published in 1964, it was said it has occasionally been proposed that a referendum might be held on a particular issue but the proposals do not ever appear to have been taken seriously. And the referendum was deeply controversial, whether we should have one or not, both in Britain and amongst officials of the European <coughs> Union. And Mr Jean Ray, the ex-president of the European Commission, declared in London in July 1974 that a referendum on this matter consists of consulting people who don't know the problems instead of consulting people who do know them. He said, I would deplore a situation in which the policy of this great country should be left to housewives. It should be, it should be decided instead by trained and informed people. Now, uh, the third referendum we had, the second one was on the alternative vote in 2011. The third one, of course, is also on Europe in 2016. And at a seminar at my uh, institution, King's College London, a recent seminar, uh, the professor of European law, Takis Tridimus, declared that this referendum in 2016 was the most significant constitutional event in Britain since the Reformation of 1660. And he said this because the referendum showed, or perhaps confirmed, that on the issue of Europe, the sovereignty of the people trumped the sovereignty of Parliament. And Brexit is coming about despite the fact that the vast majority of MPs supported Remain, a majority of the Cabinet, including the Prime Minister, supported Remain, and a large majority in the House of Lords support Remain. So Brexit is coming about not because Government and Parliament want it, but because the people want it. Government and Parliament feel themselves constrained to do something they do not wish to do. And that's a situation quite without precedent in our long constitutional history. In a conflict between a supposedly sovereign Parliament and a sovereign people, the sovereign people has triumphed. And so Europe has been responsible for the introduction of a new principle in the British Constitution, the principle of the sovereignty of the people. The referendum had become, on the European issue, in effect a third chamber of Parliament issuing legislative instructions to the other two. Now, the a result of the referendum showed that the European Union has forfeited the confidence of the British people. But some members of the political elite 
and of the European Union took the opposite view that the people had forfeited the confidence of the European Union <laughs> and had to work much harder to regain it. Um, they might have borne in mind a poem written by the German playwright Bertolt Brecht after the 1953 rising in East Germany. He wrote a poem called The Solution, which cited a leaflet by the Secretary of the Writers' Union in East Germany, stating that the people had forfeited the confidence of the government and could only win it back by redoubled efforts. And Brecht said, would it not be easier in that case for the government to dissolve the people and elect another? <laughs> Now, the second effect that Europe has had upon the British system of government and the Constitution is to abrogate the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament. And that's because when we joined the European community, it was something quite different from any other international obligation we undertook, like membership of NATO or the United Nations, because the European community was a superior legal order to that of Westminster. And it meant that a supposedly sovereign parliament could no longer do certain things which it might otherwise have wanted to do. Most obviously, to restrict immigration from the European Union. This is something which many people in Britain would like to see done, and no doubt many MPs would like to see done. But parliament, while we are members of the European community, European Union cannot do it. Now, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty is often confused with the principle of national sovereignty. They're actually quite different. Because every treaty or international commitment requires a sacrifice of national sovereignty, and it's a matter of political debate how much it's reasonable to share in the national interest. It's a matter of degree, a pragmatic concept, a tradable asset. And the general view is, in Britain, I think, when we signed up to various treaty obligations at the end of the Second World War, that these treaties would increase British security and therefore her capability and room for manoeuvre in an increasingly threatening world dominated by two superpowers, America and the Soviet Union. But parliamentary sovereignty is a quite different concept. It proclaims that Parliament can enact any law that it wishes and that no authority can declare an act of Parliament void. It's not a tradable asset like national sovereignty, a mere matter of degree. It's an absolute like virginity. And just as you can't be a qualified virgin, you can't be a qualified sovereign. A Parliament is either sovereign or it is not. And that is the uh, resistance to Europe that many have felt. And, of course, the Brexiteer slogan in 2016 was take back control. And the concept of parliamentary sovereignty is peculiar to Britain, and it's one of the reasons why we don't have a constitution, because obviously no point in having a constitution if anything could be overridden at any time by parliament. And until we joined the European community in 1973, you could sum up the British constitution in just eight words. Whatever the Queen in Parliament enacts is law. But uh, the European community altered all that, contrary, I think, to the expectation of most politicians who enacted it. And there was a famous a landmark case in 1991, the so-called Factotame case, where judges said they would disapply part of the Merchant Shipping Act because it discriminated against uh, Spanish fishermen. Uh, the discrimination was inadvertent, I should say. And the European Court of Justice said this went against European law, well, fair enough. But to many people's surprise, the House of Lords, which was then the Supreme Court uh, in Britain, said that uh, we were also bound by that and that Parliament could not have intended to go against European community law and therefore they would disapply the relevant parts of it. Uh, before 1991, the idea that the courts could question the validity of an act of Parliament would have been unthinkable. And uh, this, therefore, was altered. There was now a higher authority than an act of Parliament, namely the courts. The Times commented on a later case that Britain now has, for the first time in its history, a constitutional court. 
because we had judicial review of primary legislation, a concept hitherto unknown to the British Constitution. Furthermore, Europe had altered the balance of power in the British system of government away from Parliament and government to the courts because British courts were now, in effect, constitutional courts acting on behalf of the European community as the European Union then was. Now, of course, this was the case for all the member states. They all saw a shift of power to the courts, but it was particularly important for Britain with her long tradition of parliamentary sovereignty. So the effect of membership of the European community was to entrench provisions of community law into our legal system. Most of us, Margaret Thatcher, who was a former barrister, concluded in her memoirs written in 1995 after her retirement, most of us, including myself, paid insufficient regard to the issue of sovereignty in consideration of the case for joining Europe at the beginning of the 1970s. There was a failure to grasp the true nature of the European court and the relationship that would emerge between British law and community law. Now, in the uh, case relevant to our withdrawal in 2017, the Miller case, the judges said, rightly, I think, the European Communities Act of 1972 had provided a new constitutional process for making law in the United Kingdom. It had therefore altered the rule of recognition in the United Kingdom because the European community was a higher legal order uh, with the doctrine of primacy of European law. So, it follows that the slogan of the Brexiteers take back control is not merely taking control back from Europe, but taking control back from the courts to Parliament and government. And we can expect, if Brexit comes about, a shift of power from the courts to Parliament and to government. One commentator summed up the implications of the landmark fact-attained decision in 1991. For the first time since 1688, a court suspended the operation of an Act of Parliament. It now appeared there was a body with power to set aside the legislation of Parliament. The interesting question arises as to whether if parliamentarians had appreciated the full consequence of the European Communities Act, as Margaret Thatcher claimed she did not, they would still have passed the relevant legislation. Now, the view that Parliament abrogated its sovereignty in the case of the European Communities Act raises an awkward question. If Parliament can voluntarily limit its sovereignty in the case of that Act, why not in respect to other legislation, the Human Rights Act, for example, or the devolution legislation? What is specific uh, about Europe? There had been, when we joined the European community, a judicial revolution. The Constitution, if you like, had become what the judges said it was, <laughs> and that involved a limitation of the power of Parliament. And one constitutional lawyer said this new doctrine made sovereignty a freely adjustable commodity whenever Parliament chooses to accept some limitation. Before we entered the European community, it was thought Parliament could not choose to accept some limitation. Parliament could not bind itself. It did bind itself, and as the same commentator said, if that is not a revolution, constitutional lawyers are Dutchmen. Now, I've argued that judges altered the constitution, that they altered the rule of recognition of it. Could they do it on their own, or did not, did not such alteration require wider acceptance? Perhaps some politicians did come to accept that British membership in the European community entailed the undermining of parliamentary sovereignty but it is doubtful if the people as a whole ever did, although perhaps they might have done if we'd remained members for a longer period of time. But in the 46 years in which we have been members, I don't think the idea of the primacy of European law 
ever gained widespread popular acceptance. And that, no doubt, is a further reason why membership of the European Union never took deep roots amongst the British public and perhaps a pointer to the outcome of the 2016 referendum. Now, the transformation of British government and the Constitution was carried a stage further by the European Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights. And this became part of European Union law under the Lisbon Treaty of 2008. This charter draws on the European Convention of Human Rights, although it's quite separate from the Convention, and its 54 articles contain a number of rights which are not in the Convention at all. And amongst these rights is a very broad Article 21 right to non-discrimination on grounds, and I quote, such as sex, race, colour, ethnic or social origin, genetic features, language, religion or belief, political or any other opinion, membership of a national minority, property, birth, disability, age or sexual orientation. And this article, unlike the European Convention, provides explicit protection for members of the LGBT community. There's also uh, an Article 13 right to academic freedom, which, of course, I think is very important. Now, the Charter only applies when member states are implementing European Union law. but It's a part of European Union law, and therefore uh, the courts can disapply legislation if it goes against the Charter. So it gives a stronger protection than the Human Rights Act because the Human Rights Act only allows judges to issue a declaration of incompatibility if some provision is found to be incompatible with the Act, and that has no legal effect. It then relies on Parliament to put things right if it will do so. <coughs> now, Britain did not incorporate the Charter into her domestic law, and together with Poland, secured what ministers believed was an opt-out, and they said the Charter didn't apply to Britain. And the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, told the Commons in 2007, it is absolutely clear that we have an opt-out from the Charter, though in fact nothing is less clear. The then Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, told the Commons in 2008, the treaty records existing rights rather than creating new ones. A new legally binding protocol guarantees that nothing in the Charter extends the ability of any court to strike down UK law. And much later, in 2014, Theresa May, who was then Home Secretary before moving on to higher things, told the Commons the Charter was declaratory only and we do not consider that it applies to the United Kingdom. But in fact, we did not have an opt-out from the Charter and it would have appeared very odd if what was seen as a fundamental constitutional document giving fundamental rights were different in the various countries of the European Union. And, for example, a member state might gain an unfair competitive advantage in economics by ignoring some of the rights. And the Charter has been used by British judges to do what the Human Rights Act did not allow them to do, and namely to disapply parts of Westminster statutes because they conflict with human rights. This is a revolutionary and little-noticed development in British government, and the power was first used in a case Benkhar Bush versus Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in 2017, and I think this case is as much of a landmark case as Factor Tame. Now, Ms. Benkhar Bush was a Moroccan national who was employed by the Sudanese Embassy in London, and she claimed against the Embassy unfair dismissal failure to pay her the national minimum wage, unpaid wages and holiday pay, as well as breaches of the working time regulations. The Sudanese embassy claimed immunity under the provisions of the 1978 State Immunity Act. But Lord Sumption, speaking of unanimous court, ruled that sections of the Act conferring immunity were incompatible with Article 6 of the European Convention, providing for a fair trial and therefore right of access to a court. The remedy for this would be a declaration of incompatibility, which, as I've said, is not a strictly legal remedy because it has no legal effect. But Article 47 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights 
provides that anyone whose rights have been violated has, and I quote, the right to an effective remedy. If the convention had been violated, Lord Sumption held, so also had the Charter. And he concluded, therefore, that a conflict between EU law and English domestic law must be resolved in favour of the former, and the latter must be disapplied. There were two other cases under this. One of them, remarkably, brought by two backbench MPs, or then backbench MPs, Tom Watson, now Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, and David Davis, later to become Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. And they brought proceedings to secure the disapplication of the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act of 2014 as contrary to the Charter. Now, this went through the courts, but before a final decision could be given, the legislation was, in fact, altered. But you may think it ironic that a leading Brexiteer, David Davis, brought proceedings to question the validity of an Act of Parliament on the grounds that it offended against European Union principles. And the Charter, therefore, revolutionised the approach of British judges to the protection of rights. Now, if we leave the European Union, we will no longer be bound by the Charter because it's almost the only part of EU law which is not to be incorporated into domestic law. The rest is to be incorporated so that Parliament can decide which it wishes to keep, which it wishes to uh, modify and which it wishes to repeal entirely, but not the Charter. And the reason for that, given by the Solicitor General Robert Buckland, was that allowing courts to overturn Acts of Parliament outside of the context of EU law would be alien to our legal system and would offend against parliamentary sovereignty. So the Charter will no longer apply. Now, um, what um, ministers have said is that nevertheless, uh, Parliament will observe those uh, charter, the, the rights in the Charter. They will produce a list of the rights in the Charter and show that they're being secured in domestic law. But a list of rights presented by a minister is hardly a substitute for a codification of rights protected by the judicial review of primary legislation, such as is secured by the Charter, and even more important, the legal remedy provided by the Charter of disapplication will be lost, so the courts will no longer be able to rule a statute out of order because it's incompatible with Charter rights, so they're no longer a legal remedy. The rights, therefore, will be at the mercy of a sovereign parliament which can at any stage amend or delete them. So even if they're part of our law, their status will be radically different. They will no longer be protected. And you may say, well, what, right, what value do rights have if they are dependent upon the whim of a sovereign parliament and there is no legal remedy for a breach? The other 27 member states of the European Union will, of course, retain the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And you might ask the question, are our MPs so deeply sensitive to the protection of human rights that they alone can be entrusted with their protection when the other 27 member states think that these rights do need to be protected by something other than a legislature, that they need to be protected by the courts? You might ask that question. Now, it would seem that we will revert then to the constitutional position before 1973, before we joined the European community, when the sovereignty of Parliament was again a dominant principle. And we engage in a process that I think has never happened before in, in the developed world, a process not of entrenchment, but of disentrenchment. And just as our entry into Europe strengthened the courts at the expense of Parliament and the executive, so Brexit could reverse the process by strengthening Parliament and, in effect, government, which usually, though not present, but usually controls Parliament, at the expense of the courts. So Brexit is likely to increase the power of government uh, after we leave the European Union, if we do leave. And, of course, restoring the sovereignty of Parliament, which is really the omnicompetence of government, was one of the main aims of the Brexiteers. And will it therefore, be, will the British system again become what Lord Hailsham argued it was in 1976 
an elective dictatorship, will it once again become a paradise for the executive? And this trend goes very much against that in most democracies where rights protection is gradually being enlarged rather than abolished. So Brexit will leave a huge gap in the system of rights protection unless the judges become more creative. And this could have momentous consequences on the third effect uh, on British government that I want to talk about from Brexit, which is the effect on our devolution settlement. Now, when the devolution legislation was enacted in 1998, it was assumed that Britain would remain in the European Union. And uh, some of the matters that are devolved to the, non, to the uh, devolved bodies in the non-English parts of Britain are matters which in practice were decided by Brussels. The devolution legislation worked by reserving certain subjects to Westminster and any subject not reserved therefore was devolved. Now agriculture and fisheries, for example, are not reserved subjects and therefore they are devolved subjects. But in practice, policy on agriculture and fisheries was decided in Brussels, so it was really a bogus form of devolution. It was illusory. Now, Brexit would open the problem of how the internal market within the United Kingdom is to be preserved when we leave the European Union. Now, the internal market was preserved while we were in Europe by the EU itself and the regulations of the European Union. But when we leave, it would be perfectly possible to have, for example, four very different systems of agricultural subsidies in the different parts of the United Kingdom. And the government has decided, not wholly unreasonably in my view, that there needs to be some central control of this process, particularly as agriculture could be an important part of trade negotiations. Agricultural subsidies could be a bargaining chip in trade negotiations with independent countries. And therefore, the government says we must have a common framework. And they say, well, um, we must keep, therefore, some aspects of agriculture and fisheries back at Westminster. Uh, although, in theory, it's been devolved, we can't allow it all to be devolved. We'll keep some of it back. So that is a tacit amendment of the devolution legislation. And they tried to secure the consent of the devolved bodies to that. They did not secure the consent of the Scottish Parliament and government, where, of course, uh, Scotland is ruled by the Scottish National Party. And, and it's fair to say the SNP has not been contumacious or difficult in refusing consent to Westminster legislation. But on this, they dug their heels in. <coughs> and they passed their own legislation in the form of a Scottish continuity bill, which incidentally preserved parts of the European Charter of Fundamental Rights in, in Scottish law. And this went to the courts, uh, which uh, in a decision at the end of last year said that this bill was on the whole out with the powers of the Scottish Parliament. But the Scots say, wait a moment, there's a convention that Parliament will not normally legislate on Scottish uh, devolved matters without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. And that convention was put into statute after the independence referendum in Scotland in 2014. Now, the judges said this may be in statute, but it is not justiciable, it's a convention. It's a principle, if you like, of constitutional morality. And I suppose Westminster would say, well, we're protected by the word normally. This is Brexit is anything but a normal situation. The, in the Miller case, the court said this was not merely a convention, but an entrenched convention, but nevertheless was not justiciable. Now, what is an entrenched convention? I've asked senior judges and haven't got a very good answer about what it is. But with most conventions, if they're broken, political consequences follow. Because, um, for example, a most obvious example, if the Queen broke the convention of giving assent to government legislation, uh, I suspect the convention would be put into statute that she couldn't, in fact, do it legally. She can now, but it hasn't been done since the beginning of the 18th century. When, in 1909, the House of Lords broke convention by rejecting Lloyd George's People's Budget, an Act of Parliament was passed 
limiting their uh, statutory powers. So a convention, the breach of a convention usually leads to political action. Now, will it in this case? We don't yet know. Now, the Welsh government did achieve agreement with uh, Westminster. But they said this method of dealing with devolved matters is not satisfactory. And they said that there ought to be a Council of the Isles established, including the British government and the government of the devolved bodies, and that when the British government wishes to alter the devolution settlement, it should require the consent of at least one of the devolved bodies. In other words, if the three devolved bodies agreed together, they could veto any change. And the government has rejected that because they say it entrenches on the sovereignty of Parliament. But as you will see, this is a kind of quasi-federal solution to this very difficult problem. And there's a further problem uh, with, with this suggestion by the Welsh of who would represent England, which of course is the largest part of the United Kingdom but has no devolved body. Now in practice, uh, UK ministers for devolved matters are English ministers. For example, the uh, Secretary of State for Health, Education, Transport, they deal with matters in, primarily in England because those matters are devolved by the devolution legislation. But how can the UK government both represent England but also be the arbiter in the whole system? So that raises a further difficult problem. Uh, one suggested answer, which I put in my book, I'm not wholly confident of it, is that England could be represented by the metro mayors, the mayor of London, and representatives of the local government association. That is perhaps the nearest we can get with it. But I think Brexit has illuminated the fact that you may argue we have no constitution, or you may argue that while we were in Europe, we were bound by a constitution, which was that of the European Communities Act, but you can also say that in Britain there are four constitutions, depending on whether you look at it from London, from Scotland, from Cardiff, or from Belfast. If you look at it from Belfast, or should I say from Stormont, an Irish nationalist would say, the system of power sharing in the Belfast Agreement, together with the provisions for North-South cooperation and the consultative role for the government of the Republic, amounts to a convention by which the government is required not to make constitutional changes such as are involved in Brexit without the agreement of both communities in Northern Ireland. Because obviously Brexit will have consequences for North-South collaboration and for, collab and for the border, as we, we know, between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And nationalists say that by convention, the Belfast Agreement established a system of shared sovereignty in Northern Ireland. And Sinn Féin argued after the Brexit referendum the Belfast Agreement had yielded a system of shared sovereignty relating to north-south institutional and cross-border bodies. The British government has the position the Belfast Agreement confirms British sovereignty in Northern Ireland, it does not provide for joint authority, and the Republic has no more than a consultative role in the affairs of the province. Northern Ireland Unionists also have a different view of the Constitution from Westminster, because Unionists say their loyalty to Westminster is contractual rather than unconditional. It's a loyalty only on condition that there's no attempt by Westminster to extrude them from the rest of the United Kingdom, and that is something the Unionists claim they can decide for themselves, as they are doing over the backstop. And this is why uh, Unionists... Uh, in, in previous uh, um, years, resisted the laws of Westminster, which they held threatened the Union. And in the 1970s, most recently, it forced the British government to abandon power-sharing institutions established by the Sunningdale Agreement. So both from the Unionist as well as the Nationalist perspective, the view of the Constitution from Stormont is very different from what it is in Westminster. Now, the view from Holyrood is also different from that of Westminster because the British conception of devolution is that it's a delegation of power from Westminster subject to the continuing sovereignty of Parliament, as is shown by the recent legislation. The Scottish conception is that devolution was a response to the sovereign will of the Scottish people, renewed by the Scottish Constitutional Convention in 1989, which began with a claim of right that said, we gathered together as the Scottish Constitutional Convention 
do hereby acknowledge the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government suited to their needs. Now, the sovereign right of the Scottish people clashes with the sovereignty of Parliament with Westminster. Um, <clears throat> and that uh, was, you may argue, tacitly accepted by Westminster when it uh, legislated for devolution because the Scots alone wanted it. It didn't ask the rest of the United Kingdom whether they wanted what amounted to uh, a reinterpretation of the Acts of the Union, a revaluation of the Acts of the Union. It was for Scotland alone to decide. Now, the view from Cardiff is also different from that of Westminster because, as I've said, the Welsh believe that devolution established a quasi-federal state in Britain, and that was a logic of devolution in which the rights of the various parts are protected. So the Welsh government seeks a new constitutional settlement for the United Kingdom in which Parliament would explicitly abandon its claim to sovereignty. There's apparently an American saying to the effect that in politics, where you stand depends upon where you sit. And that may also be said of the British Constitution following devolution and Brexit because it reopens issues which appeared to be settled. And the meaning of the British Constitution seems to depend on where you live. There's therefore a profound difference of view now on the fundamental rule of recognition of the Constitution and in particular whether a multinational state in which the rights and responsibilities of the various parts are defined in law is compatible with a situation of parliamentary sovereignty in which in practice government can at any time overrule the devolved bodies. And that conflict cannot be good for the cohesion and unity of the state. It's been reopened by Brexit. But uh, in the 19th century, Tocqueville famously said there was no British constitution. But as I've said, it may be there are four British constitutions. And even before Brexit, as a result of devolution, Lord Bingham, who's perhaps the greatest judge of his generation, said, constitutionally speaking, we now find ourselves in a trackless desert without any map or compass. And he advocated a constitution which would enable any citizen to ascertain the cardinal rules regulating the government of the state of which he or she is a member. So Brexit, if it occurs, will leave us with constitutional uncertainty and an unprotected constitution. While we were in the European Union, we lived in effect under a constitution, a protected constitutional system in which institutions enjoyed only the powers given to them by the various treaties. And that included the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So the European system is protected against the abuse of governmental power. It is rare, if not unprecedented, for a democracy to exit from a major international human rights regime. And no country has hitherto moved in evolutionary fashion as Britain is doing from a protected to an unprotected system. And the process of doing so, in my view, raises profound constitutional questions because almost every democracy has a protected constitution, the only exceptions being New Zealand and Israel, though Israel is trying to develop a, a constitution. And uh, one may ask whether Brexit might prove to be our own constitutional moment, that the very nakedness of our unprotected constitution may provoke people to think it is time we start to develop one like almost every other democracy. Now, just before we entered the um, European uh, community in 1972, um, one writer uh, published a book based on his wreath lectures on Britain and Europe, in which he called it, he called it Journey to an Unknown Destination. And the destination of Europe is still unknown, but whatever the destination, we probably won't be travelling towards it. Uh, the French Foreign Minister, Robert Schuman, when he issued the Schuman Plan in 1950, establishing the coal and steel community, the origin of the European community, said that Europeans had a destiny shared in common. Britain is deciding, possibly, that she's not part of that common destiny. Perhaps has never been part of it. 
In a poll in 2016, the British came 28th out of the 28 member states in terms of identifying themselves as Europeans. Nearly two-thirds of British did not identify as Europeans, as compared with an average of just 38% who did not so identify in the EU as a whole. The only countries approaching Britain's low level of identification with Europe were Greece and Cyprus, which had suffered serious financial crises in recent years. So Europe has caused a deep conflict between the facts of economics, which to many point to continued membership, and the sentiments of nationhood, which point to Brexit. It may not be wholly surprising if the sentiment of nationhood triumphs. But these issues have caused unparalleled turbulence in British politics, a turbulence that has by no means come to an end, as we can see from yesterday's vote. It's divided families and friends for longer than any issue since the conflict over foreign policy in the 1930s. Even so, it has not shaken the foundations of the political system, and I think whatever the final outcome of the Brexit negotiations, Britain will still remain one of the most stable democracies in the world, with a solid constitutional and political structure. In 1777, after we lost the American colonies, a young British aristocrat said to Adam Smith, this will be the ruin of the nation. And Adam Smith replied, there is a great deal of ruin in a nation. And I think those are wise words, well worth remembering amidst the tumult caused by Brexit. Now, I want to conclude by looking at the effects of Brexit if it occurs on the European Union and how the European Union will develop after Brexit. It is not easy to understand Europe. And indeed, Madeleine Albright, who was a, a Secretary of State in America under Clinton, said, to understand Europe, you have to be a genius or French. <laughs> now, I am neither, but I will try to do my best to understand. The departure of Britain is bound to put the European Union under strain. Britain, after all, is one of the largest and most powerful states in Europe, and so her departure is bound to weaken the European Union. Furthermore, Brexit threatens, as it were, the ethos of the European Union, which is that it, with the consent of its member states, is on an irreversible path to greater integration in terms of the ideal of ever closer union. So Brexit threatens what might be called the ideology of the European Union. Now, the European Union was founded, in my view, and remains, as essentially a peace project. And indeed, the history of Europe since 1914 falls neatly into two contrasting periods. Between the wars, politics on the continent was marked by turbulence and crisis. But for nearly 75 years, its western half has known political stability and high rates of economic growth. And that is in large part due to the recognition of collective security and interdependence in a continent which had suffered badly from the absence of it. The European movement began, as I said earlier, uh, with the European coal and steel community, which is to, whose aim was to turn the production of coal and steel into weapons of peace and so undermine the basis of Franco-German antagonism. As Edward Heath, the Prime Minister who took Britain into the European community, told the House of Commons in April 1975, the immediate purpose was political. The European community was founded for a political purpose. It was not a federal purpose, but a political purpose. The political purpose was to absorb the new Germany into the structure of the European family, and economic means were adopted for this very political purpose. The European coal and steel community was devised during the period of the Cold War, when Europe was divided. But the movement to integrate Europe was not intended to ratify the division of the continent. On the contrary, the Founding Fathers saw it as a step towards the complete unification of Europe, since a united Germany firmly anchored in Europe would be the best guarantee to the Russians that there would be no resurrection of German nationalism. The whole purpose, Churchill said at the Albert Hall in May 1948, of a united democratic Europe is to give definite guarantees against aggression. 
The creation of a healthy and contented Europe is the first and truest interest of the Soviet Union. Speaking at Brussels in 1949, Churchill said, the Europe we seek to unite is all Europe. And that, of course, was a dream not to be realized until the 21st century. In his Zurich speech, Churchill said the fighting has stopped, but the dangers have not stopped, and that what Europe needed was a blessed act of oblivion. In 1949, Robert Schumann, speaking at Strasbourg, said, we are carrying out a great experiment, the fulfillment of the same recurrent dream that for 10 centuries has revisited the peoples of Europe, creating between them an organization putting an end to war and guaranteeing an eternal peace. And this was to be achieved by locking the economies of France and Germany together so the two countries could never go to war again. That aim has long been achieved. In 2018, Franz Timmermans, vice president of the European Commission and a former Dutch foreign minister, showed his 12-year-old daughter the anti-tank defences at the frontier with Germany where his grandparents had cheered the Allied bombing of Aachen during the war. He said, this is part of a border. And his daughter looked at him and said, Daddy, what is a border? <coughs> now, of course, even if the European Union were now to break up, France and Germany would remain securely at peace. But a secure peace has not been achieved everywhere in Europe by any means. In particular, it has not been achieved in the Western Balkans, where ancient hatreds, hatreds threaten the stability of the region. In that part of Europe, most of all, warring neighbours need a common home, and membership of the European Union seems the only way in which age-old conflicts can be overcome. The conflict when Yugoslavia broke up offers a terrible warning of what could happen in a Europe that has once more broken up international states. Indeed, one important factor, perhaps the prime factor, preventing open warfare between Muslims and Slavs, between Kosovo and Serbia, was the desire of both countries to join the European Union. It was made clear to Serbia her prospects of membership depended upon establishing a relationship with Kosovo. In 2013, agreements were reached on such matters as bilateral trade, Kosovo's participation in regional initiatives, and the status of the Slav minority in Kosovo. The Enlargement Strategy Report of the European Commission said the historic agreement reached by Serbia and Kosovo in April is further proof of the power of the European Union perspective and its role in healing history's deep scars. And the European Union has in the Balkans become a roof over warring nationalities as the Austro-Hungarian Empire attempted to be in the years before 1914. And stability of the Balkans is, after all, as important to Britain as to the continent because it was in the Balkans that the great catastrophe of the 20th century began in 1914, dragging Britain into war. Now, those who helped found the post-war order had seen it destroyed, not just once but twice, by two ruinous world wars. And the same perception animated those European leaders who sought a united Europe after 1945, men such as Winston Churchill, Conrad Adenauer and Robert Schumann. International order had broken down in 1914 when the First World War, which the American diplomat George Kennan called the seminal catastrophe of the 20th century, uh, occurred. And before that, Europe had known almost 100 years of peace, broken only by local wars, which had not involved confrontation between the great powers. People had taken peace for granted, underestimating the fragility of the balance of power which sustained it. Europe could, so some believed in 1914, easily survive a short war which, against a small recalcitrant state, Serbia. In the words of the great diplomatic historian A.J.P. Taylor, all thought that war could be fitted into the existing framework of civilization. War was expected to interrupt the even tenor of civilian life only while it lasted. The British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, expressed his outlook in extreme form when he said in the House of Commons on 3rd of August 1914, 
If we are engaged in war, we shall suffer, but little more than we shall suffer if we stand aside. When in 1914 the Austrian socialist Victor Adler told Austria's foreign minister that war would provoke revolution in Russia and perhaps even in the Habsburg Empire itself, the foreign minister Leopold von Berthold laughed at him and said, and who will lead this revolution? Perhaps Mr Bronstein sitting over there at the Café Central. Now Mr Bronstein turned out to be Leon Trotsky and he did indeed lead a revolution. The chain of events which began with the murder of the Austrian Archduke in Sarajevo was to encompass almost the whole of the 20th century, ending only with the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union in 1989. And from the ruins of the continent, the founding fathers began the process of European integration. It was, as I have said, constructed by a generation all too conscious of the dangers of a breakdown of international order. But now as the generation which either endured the Second World War or which understands it as part of its historical memory has disappeared, so also there has disappeared that sense of the fragility of international order which the immediate post-war generation understood so well. Now, as in the years before 1914, there are siren voices saying that the international order would benefit from a shake-up and that any disturbance to it could be kept well under control. The view of the Austrian leadership and the German general staff in 1914, they were certainly wrong then. The aim of the founders of the European Union then was to transcend nationalism. And I want to end with a remarkable uh, valedictory speech made to the European Parliament in January 1995 by the French President François Mitterrand, just over a year before his death. Uh, he spoke of his childhood amidst families torn apart by the First World War, who were mourning their dead and nursing a hatred against their traditional enemies. He spoke of his time in a German prison camp in the Second World War. War, he declared, is Europe's past but it could also be Europe's future. It is up to us, he went on, to be henceforth the guardians of peace, of security and of the future. And he concluded by saying, nationalism means war. Le nationalisme, c'est la guerre. Thank you.